This morning, I have a tall task, y'all, and um, we are going to cover quite a little bit of ground. If you've not been with us, we are in a series looking at the life of an Old Testament character named Elisha. And uh, this is going to be a strange and stretching series, and this morning is going to be no different. But you seem like you wore your flexible clothes, ready to be stretched a little bit, and uh, you know, the strange part, I'm not going to make any comments about that, but um, our, our goal is really to ask the questions that we were just singing. Is he really the same God? Is this a fiction book that we look at that we call the Bible? Um, Is it possible that God still wants to do some of the great things we saw him do in this book? Is it possible that some of the limitations are a matter of our categories and the compartments that we've put to keep God in certain places? Is it possible that he wants to break out of those and do incredible things in our time. Let's get to work. Woo, if you have a copy of the Bible, we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4, and we're going to start reading at verse number 1. We'll pause to make observations as we work our way through a couple of contrasting stories. They are going to be intense. They are going to be emotional. But I trust that the Spirit of God will reveal all he has for us in his word. Second Kings chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Okay. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha. Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his Slaves. And that's how the chapter opens. Wow. Scary situation is being brought to Elisha's attention. Um, we learned this about Elisha in week number one. Before Elisha um, was promoted to become God's primary representative in the entire world, he belonged to um, a group of about 50 part-time prophets who stood as representatives between God and the people. One of Elisha's former teammates has left his widow with so much debt that she has no choice but to let these merciless loan sharks come and take her kids as their slaves. Now, we don't know the details, but it's likely that um, this woman was the widow of a prophet named Obadiah. Obadiah was a prophet who hid a hundred of God's prophets from Jezebel when she was trying to execute any prophet she could find. And it's thought that it cost a lot of money to keep these prophets fed and alive while he had them in hiding. And he got into so much debt that when he died, his wife was stuck with more than she could possibly repay. So she's about to watch her toddlers ripped from her arms and turned into slaves because in no way she's paying these lawn sharks back this amount of money. And in a patriarchal society like this, a woman like her couldn't find any employment 
And even if she could somehow, nothing that would pay this amount of money. And then on top of that, the law was actually on the side of these creditors. There was a provision in the law for them to come and take her kids as slaves for up to six years. This is bad. She is stuck. She has no resources. She has no legal recourse. There is nothing this desperate mom can do. Elisha is her all-in move. She goes all-in on this. If Elisha can't do something about this, she is going to lose all the men she loves in a single year. Man. Well, we're going to see this more and more in this series. This theme is going to continually emerge as we're introduced to situations in which people are trapped in stuck desperation and there is nothing they can do. And one of the reasons we're going to see these scenes of stuck desperation over and over in this story is because stuck desperation tends to set the stage for the miracle. Which is good news, by the way, because it means that there may be a better lens through which to look at your seasons or your situations of stuck desperations. Maybe you need to revision those as stages for possible miracles. I'm just asking, is there a category for that in your mind as you encounter Stuck and impossible situations of desperation like the one that this woman is in. Is there an area in which maybe you are experiencing desperate stuckness? You just don't have what it takes to get out of this situation. And it is threatening. Life as... You know it. Is it possible the stage is getting set? Verse number two. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me what do you have in your house? Or your servant has nothing there at all. Well, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Yeah, that's not going to do it. Unless, of course, God gets a hold of it. Verse number three. Elisha said, (laughs) he said to her, go around and ask All your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars. And as each jar is filled, put it to one side. And I'm just saying, one of the reasons... That if you're anything like me, that I think I miss out on some of the incredible things God wants to do in my life is because... I just have way too much self-respect to look silly. I'm not about that life. I have a little too much self-respect slash self-consciousness to do silly stuff. And yet often the miraculous will call us to do things that look absolutely ridiculous. Study the narratives of the Bible and just see what did Jesus ask people to do. Well, I want you to go to that fountain and I want you to wash. I want you to jump into this and I want you to do that. But that's ridiculous though. 
And I'm just saying I have a little too much self-respect at times. My reputation matters a little bit too much to do ridiculous and silly stuff. But more on that next week. Everyone knows this woman's husband has died and there is nothing in her house. And yet here she goes around town asking for empty jars. Girl, if you weren't grieving right now, we would have questions. Such as, what on earth do you need empty jars for? Oh, that's a good question. Well, see, I was going to take my little teacup of oil and I was going to just pour it into all of these jars. Oh, so you're crazy, right? This is ridiculous. I'm just telling you right now. Elisha asked her to do something so ridiculous that a self-respecting person like you would be like, no, that doesn't make too much sense. A self-conscious person like me would have had trouble with. And I'm just telling you the number of times I've sensed God inviting me to do something a little bit out of the box, a little bit uncomfortable. The number of times I've sensed God wants to do something in and through me, but ah, that's going to make me look a little silly. And I've kind of said no thanks. There are times he's literally sent people who said, and I know this is strange, I had a vision and a dream that you were supposed to do such and such and such and such. I'm like, I know. I've been holding out on that. Because that feels a little too ridiculous. That I'm supposed to go and say this to that person, but I don't know that person. And then I'm supposed to then go and talk to them about, like, I'm just saying, that's a little bit silly. I wonder if you have one of those. Maybe you're stuck in some way and... and um, Someone around you is stuck and you sense you need to go around town and start borrowing jars. The question is, are you willing to show a little silly faith at times? To go and voluntarily confess something to somebody that they would never have known if you hadn't told them. And you're like, what's the point of that? That's just going to stir stuff up. That's ridiculous. That's silly. I have a little bit too much self-respect to do something like that. Maybe you've sensed the Lord telling you something to go and tell somebody else. And you're like, they don't know me. And I'm going to go and tell them that. What if it doesn't work out? I'll look like an absolute fool. So I'm going to stay right here. In the self-respect territory and avoid some of the silliness. Of what might be required of me. Maybe he's going to ask me to go to the front at the end of a service and pray with somebody. And people are going to look at me like, oh, well, she has problems. So no matter how many times I feel stirred to do that, I'm, I'm not about that life. Do you know what people would think about a self-conscious person like me? Thank you very much. I'm just saying, if you're like me, we might be on the side where we stave off some of what God wants to do because, man, I'm not going around asking for jars. Everyone knows I don't have that kind of oil. Well, the widow is stuck and desperate enough. She's willing to be silly. Check it out. Verse number five. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her and she kept pouring I love that. Verse 6. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, uh, bring me another one. But he replied, there is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. 
This is where I want to enter into the story. And this is where most of us want to enter into the story. Like the miracle of this abundance and overflowing provision. I'm about that life. I don't want to ever be stuck in desperation. And I definitely don't want to feel self-conscious or silly. But if I can jump in here where the oil starts to flow. Then that I'm about. But she admits she's stuck and she's willing to be silly. And God miraculously supplies abundantly. And this resource helps this widow from losing her sons to slavery. As he multiplies the little that she had. And did anyone notice? The only reason the oil stopped flowing was because she ran out of jars. (laughs) Like that's unbelievable. What do the kids say these days? No cap. I don't think that's what they mean. But that's what I thought of when I read. How crazy. If she had a million jars, she might very well still have been pouring oil to this very day. I don't know. No cap. I think this is such a beautiful picture of the God of abundance. But more than that, I think this is such a beautiful picture of the way God wants us to experience him as the God of Abundance. If only we weren't so self-sufficient and self-conscious. And I know this because Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 says this. Now to him, God, who is able to do what? Immeasurably more than anything you can imagine or you can ask him according to his power that is at work in us. God is like the only caps. On what I want to do are your imagination and your requests. Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it with no cap, no limit, abundant, overflowing. Just like the picture that's painted in this story. Jesus came that our joy might be not a teacup, but that our joy might be complete and overflowing. We might need more jars for the amount of joy that Jesus came for us to experience. God makes promise after promise after promise, and who caps the promise? I do. I'm like, there's no way that promise can still be good. The only reason you're not cashing in on the promise is because you ran out of jars. You stopped asking. Like, ah, that should be enough. Do you guys really think he would fill all of this? I'm just telling you, I read these stories and I realize the limitation of the categories that I create for God. He says it's more than I can ask or imagine. I think God wants us to experience him as the God of abundance so much more. Than we typically are. Because we are. Constantly putting. Caps and. Limits. Verse number 7. So. She went and told the man of God. And he said. Go. Sell the oil. Pay your debts. And you and your son can live on what is left. How much oil was this? (laughs) You have not scrape the surface of the abundance of the God we serve. Did I mention that? He is such a God of abundance and most of us are living teacup Christianity lives. 
Are you willing to play your silly part? Is there an area that maybe you feel stuck and you are just needing to trust he is your source? He's the God of abundance. But are you willing to play your part, whatever that might be? I'm so good at saying, God, would you do this great thing? And he's good at saying, great, but here's the part I want you to play. Mm, Yeah, I'm not forgiving them. No, thanks. Cap. But here's the part I want you to play. Continue to be generous with the little oil you have. Mm, mm, mm. I'm not giving. Cap. The Bible says, he who sows generously, what? Um, All right, what were we talking about? Right on the heels of this, he tells a second story. An intense story, an emotional story that contrasts with the first story. Verse number eight. One day, Elisha went to Shunem and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. We all know people like Elisha. Like I invited you to one dinner, bro. And now, every day you just happen to be in the neighborhood talking about what y'all cooking. It was likely that Elisha had a predictable ministry route and routine. And when this really wealthy farmer's wife figured out his itinerary, uh, she invited him to, to dinner. Um, he would go from Mount Carmel uh, to the Jordan River, and he would go through this valley in which the town of Shunem was. It was like a, a midpoint of some... So she figures out that this holy man who represents God comes through this part of town every so often and she wants him around. So she invites him to dinner and one dinner turns into dinner every time that he's there. And instead of getting tired of this guy showing up, she actually dials up the hospitality. Verse number nine, she said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put... In it, a bed and a table, a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. And so this couple with some serious bank um, builds a guest suite above their mansion big enough for Elisha and his servant. See, since the last time we saw Elisha last week, this dude has grown in influence and he has grown in his network and his connections. He is now linked up to the most powerful people in the country. And apparently one of the perks is he's managed to hire a full-time assistant. This full-time assistant anticipates all of Elisha's needs, and this full-time assistant carries out all of Elisha's wishes. Verse number 11. One day Elisha came, and he went up to his room and lay down there. And he said to his servant, Gehazi, called a Shunammite, the woman who owned the house. So Gehazi called her, and she stood before him. 
And Elisha said to him, that is Gehazi, tell her, you've gone to all this trouble for us. Now what am I to do for you? What can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? Elisha makes the same offer that he made to the widow just a few verses ago. Your husband was so good to us, what can I do for you? And he says to this Shunammite woman, y'all have been so good to us, what can we do for you? And again, Elisha drops hints of his new connections and his influence and the favor he carries with the king and the military. Can I talk to them? Are you guys looking to move to bigger places and do better things? Because I can put in a good word for you. And while he's asking her this question, I'm still stuck on this patriarchal culture situation because I'm still like, wait, what? First of all, you're telling me Elisha summoned the woman who owns the house. And she appeared before him. And then when she gets there, he doesn't even address her directly. He talks to his servant. Says, now tell her. Ask her. I'm like, what on earth? I'll let you feel your feelings about that. I just raise the issues and ask the questions. But apparently, she was not offended by this in any way. But nor was she enticed by Elisha's offer at all. Um, she's like, yeah, tell your boss to look around. Shalom. We're good. Right? Verse number 13, second part. She replied, I have a home among my own people. Um, we like where we are. We like our community. We take care of each other. We are good. We don't need anything from you, sir. Just enjoy your stay. Thank you very much. And then she leaves. And Elisha's like, yeah. I can't help but feel like that was the safe answer. Verse 14. So he asks his servant, for real though, what can be done for her? And then Gehazi, he just drags this woman's heart out of the safe shadows and puts all of her business out there. Just puts it out into the atmosphere. Second part of the verse. She has no son and her husband is old. Wow. And in this moment, the vivid contrast between these two stories comes into view. A poor widow about to lose her kids, about to have her kids ripped from her arms, contrasted with a wealthy woman Who's never held kids in hers. This widow who's about to lose the very little she had. In contrast with this wealthy woman who had everything except the little that she longed for the most. But what they had in common was both of them had a stuck desperation about which they could do Nothing. Neither of them, no matter what they had, 
could afford what they longed for most. Verse 15. Then Elisha said, call her. So he called her and she stood in the doorway. She didn't come into the room this time. About this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. Interestingly, this time, Elisha speaks directly to the woman. And he promises her the thing her heart longed for most. This time next year, you will be a mama holding a boy in your arms. She hears this and she freaks out. But not in the way you would think. Second part of verse 16, she says, no, 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 my Lord. Please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. Elisha, don't do this to me. Elisha, don't do this. Don't go there. Please don't go there. This is not cool. Don't do, do not awaken this hope in me all over again. Do not do that. Do not rip that scab open on my heart. Do not do this. No, no, no. Don't go. Of all the things in the world, please do not mess with my mama dreams. I've learned to live with this longing and I've come to terms with this lack in my life. Don't do this. There is pleading in her voice. We have money, as you can see. We have seen every expert. We've consulted every professional and they've all told us the same thing. This is not in the cards for y'all. Don't do this to me, Elisha. I tried to tell you, shalom, we're good. We don't need anything. Then y'all dug all of this up. Don't do this. An incredibly emotional scene. And as unfair as this might be, having not prepared any of you for this, I will be so curious to know if you know What your impossible longing is. Oh, we we all have one. And it lives in these vulnerable, safe shadows. Where I dare not stir it up. Lest I start to hope for it. Or I start to hope for it again. And we're not going there. This is the kind of stuff we don't talk about. I come to church so we don't have to talk about things like this. Because they stir things in me and then it's not fair because then what happens with don't go there. I'm curious to know if you know what that might be for. You. Let's not discuss it. Because if I reach for it or I reach for it again and I don't get it, I will be devastated. And I can't handle 
that. I'd rather learn to live without it and say, Shalom, I'm good. Than to even let myself go there. I've learned and I've just resigned to the reality that I don't want to talk about it. It's just not in the cards. Or it's too scary to think about. I'm just telling you, let's humanize this woman because that's what she's experiencing right now. Do not talk about me being restored to my family. Do not go there. Please don't stir that in me. I've had, listen, we had such a bitter and painful fallout. And I hate the fact that my kids are going to grow up without knowing some of their own flesh and blood. But after what I did, I can't even let myself hope to be forgiven and to be restored and to be at this year's Thanksgiving. So let's not even talk about that. I'm learning to live with it. Shalom. I'm good. We've tried everything and we've tried everything and every expert has told us the same thing. That is why I'm off social media because if I see one more of those ridiculous gender reveal things. And then Mother's Day is coming next week like I don't want to go there. That's what she's experiencing in this space, in this moment. Oh, you better believe I avoid the grocery store during Valentine's Day season because, listen, I have three decades I've longed for it and I've laid it to rest. That that kind of lifelong companionship is not in the cards for me. So can we please not do another series about relationships? Maybe when I was younger and a bit more naive, I would have believed. But every expert has told me the same thing. Riding bikes with your grandkids again is not going to happen. Don't go there. Oh no, don't talk about me starting any kind of like venture or business. Like yes, I believe God has created me to do something so much different than what I'm doing. But I tried it once and it did not go well and it hurt the people around me. So I'm just not even venturing out into that whole thing. It is too risky and if it doesn't work, I will be devastated. So do not go there. I wonder if you know what it might be that might allow you to relate to this woman. I just ask the questions, painful though they may be sometimes. Except in this one, I know what some of those are for me. And as I was thinking about this, I was like, I don't want to think about this though. I don't want to think about this. God, I want to go to church and for church to be a safe place where you do safe things. Church should never be a place where we talk about the fear of devastation and longings and deep like No. But man, some of the stuff stirred in me and I was like, oh man. I had to admit some of the ridiculousness of the ways that I handled it. I would never mention these things to anyone because um, if I did, I might start to hope for them. And that's scary. Or I might jinx it. Whatever that means. 
And so I play these ridiculous games. I'm not, not even kidding you. Like, uh, I don't want to put it out there in the atmosphere. I literally feel like if I ask God for some of these things that I deeply long for, the impossible longings and vulnerable places of my heart, if I ask God for it, then um, he'll become aware of it. And once I inform him and he becomes aware of it, he might use that as leverage to get me to do other things. And so I don't even think about it out loud. I don't want him to intercept my thoughts. That's how silly it gets at least for me. So I'd rather live with a quiet disappointment of not having it than the devastation of having loudly hoped for it and it not happen. And by the way, I just want to acknowledge that there is validity to that. Like that trepidation, that terror of devastation. If something is stirred in me and it doesn't materialize, like that is, there is validity, validity to that. There is validity to that if God has said no. If God has said no. But if you've never put it out into the atmospheres, so to speak, the holy atmosphere, because you're being bullied by the fear of devastation, I think Elisha would say, oh, I'm inviting you to consider a different category, a different possibility, because that's actually what faith is it's interesting faith is not the thing i do when i put my foot on something you know and i test it out in case it doesn't work and i'm disappointed that's not faith oh no faith is i stood on it with all of my weight if it doesn't work out i will be devastated that's how you know you're stepping into a place of faith That's how you know. If Jesus Christ hasn't risen from the dead and we've put the entirety of our weight on that, Paul says, y'all are doomed. Now, if you're testing out the, the Jesus thing with one foot because I don't want to be disappointed, I'm telling you, whatever that is, it is not how the Bible defines faith. Faith is the thing you do when if it doesn't work, you are devastated. Because you put all of it onto that thing. And so yet in church, we don't want to talk about those vulnerable places that might invite us to take these risks with our hearts and with our lives. And if it doesn't work, I'll be devastated. That's exactly the place where God wants to meet us. That is exactly the place where he invites us. So he can show up as the God who does impossible things. Come on, we can't keep singing same God and not study the stories of standing on the edge of the Red Sea and be like, if this doesn't work out though, that's the faith Elisha would invite us into. The reason I'm asking where is that vulnerable and impossible longing in your heart because I'm telling you there is something in there that is going to invite us to new places of faith. The question is, is he the God of abundance still? 
Because here's what faith says. I'm going to step on this with all of my weight. And if it doesn't work, I will be devastated. And just as I'm falling, the God of abundance will meet me still. He's the God who meets us in our devastation. But there's something in me that believes. If I go there and it doesn't work out, then I'll be devastated and I'll be all by myself. God's like, if it doesn't work out, worst case scenario, I will be with you in the fire. But this is risky and messy stuff to talk about. Verse 17. All right, we got to move. But the woman became pregnant. And the next year, about that same time, she gave birth to a son just as Elisha had told her. Because regardless of her uh, tender trepidation, God delivers, pun intended. He does the humanly impossible, and she holds her vulnerable miracle in her arms. I cannot imagine with the money they had, the kind of party they threw to celebrate the abundance of God, who does above and beyond anything we can ask or imagine. And she would not think to ask, and she would not let herself imagine. And God did it still. Verse 18. If you want to know how raw and messy the Bible is. Verse 18. The child grew. And one day he went out to his father. Who was with the reapers. And he said to his father. My head. My head. His father told a servant. Carry him to his. Mother. And just like it is in each of our lives, the clouds turn dark with no warning. Verse 20, after the servants had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon and then he died. This toddler developed some sudden aneurysm type of headache so severe that a few hours later he dies in the arms of the mom who longed to hold a child. And life does not get any darker than that. No parent should ever have to bury their child. Verse 21. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God. Then shut the door and went out. What? Something snaps in her super mama heart and she goes crazy again, but not in the way that you might think. Her response is categorically other because you notice it doesn't say that her boy died and then she cried. It doesn't say she went around town and started telling everybody what had happened. It doesn't say that she took him to the medical examiner or she took him to the graveyard. It doesn't say any of that. It says she took him upstairs and laid him on the bed of the man of God who started the whole thing. We could have a whole conversation about learning the art of taking it back where it came from. And now I'm talking to some of us who are raising teens. In the painful times, taking them back to where they came from. 
to the source, which is what she does. He, verse 22, she called her husband and said, please send me one of the, this is crazy what she's doing. Send me one of the servants and a donkey so I can go to the man of God quickly and then return. She wants to go find the guy who talks to the God who does impossible things. Not her husband right now, not social media right now, not the medical examiner right now. She's going directly to the source. Verse 23. Uh, Why go to him today, he asked. It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. This is fascinating to me. And such a reminder of, of, of us. This guy has his feet firmly planted on the earth. And on the earth there is no category for what she is thinking about. There is no category for anything other than the declarations the earth has made. And so he says to his wife, like, oh, why are you going to see the holy man? It's not Easter. It's not Christmas. Why are we going to church? Second part of verse 23. Shalom, she said. That's all right. She saddled the donkey and said to her servant, lead on. Don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she set out, came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. She's experienced something about God that has changed the way she responds and where she puts her weight. She used to be terrified of even thinking about impossible things. And she is riding her donkey to go find out about something that is insane. She's convinced heaven gave me this boy. And if this is how his short journey on earth is going to end, I will grieve and I will mourn. But heaven's going to have to tell me that. So she goes to the source. She goes to headquarters for this one. Second part of verse 25. When he, Elisha, saw in the distance, the man of God said to his servant, Gehazi, look, there's a Shunammite. Run to meet her and ask her, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? And listen to this response. Second part of verse 26, Shalom. Everything's all right, she said. What? (laughs) Categories, caps, caps and categories. Until I hear anything different from the God who gave him to me, everything is all right. Until I get final word from the God of the impossible, everything is fine. Plus, Gehazi, I didn't come to talk to you. You're just the middleman. Take me to your leader. Verse 27. When she reached the man of God at the mountain, he took hold, she took hold of his feet. And Gehazi was like instant security. Came over and pushed her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone. She's in bitter distress, but the Lord has hidden from me. And has not told me why. 
This is where all her stuff comes out. This is where she falls with her full weight, the full weight of her heart, and she lets loose. Elisha, did I ask you for a son? My Lord, didn't I tell you, don't raise my hopes? This was why. This is on you. This is on heaven. And by the way, you need to know God doesn't mind that, especially when you're right. This one's on you, Lord. You did this. Fair. And he knew exactly what had happened. Elisha said to Gehazi, tuck your cloak into your belt, take my staff in your hand, and run. Don't greet anyone you meet. And if anyone greets you, don't answer them. Lay my staff on the boy's face. I want my staff to make contact with his face. Verse 30. But the child's mother said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or response. So Gehazi went back to meet Elisha and told him, the boy has not awakened. And then the story gets uber strange. Verse 32. When Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door on the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed and lay on the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands, as he stretched himself out on him. The boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room, presumably praying, and then got on the bed and stretched out on him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. This is the Bible. First of all, how audacious is this? You want to talk about a man who's learned to live by faith. Who has a category to even think of something like this? How bold is that? Wow. What a crazy thing to ask God and consider the possibility. That's crazy. And super weird also. Um, The Bible encourages contact, right? You see it in the Bible. The laying on of hands. uh, The contact between two people. Which is one of the reasons Elisha wants contact with his staff on the boy's face. But that doesn't do the trick. So he goes all out. Ridiculous, silly, desperate. Literally all of his weight. And apparently this prophet CPR move works. Boy gets warm. But close wasn't good enough for Elisha. So he does it again. The boy sneezes seven times. And the language is almost like the boy expelled something out of his body. And then he woke up. This is the word of God. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite. And he did. And when she came, he said, take your son. She came in. 
fell at his feet and bowed to the ground. Then she took her son and went out. And I'm just asking, is there a category for any of this in your mind, in your faith? What an incredible story. What an incredible sequence of stories. What an incredible picture of the reality and the rawness and the messiness and the brokenness of life as it's lived. One moment you are in one place of absolute devastation. The next moment you're in a place of delight. The next moment you're in a place of desperation. The next moment all of life represented in this story. And yet the thing that screams loudly is in all of those seasons, here is the God of abundance being the God of abundance in all of them. It just is so much more apparent to us when the oil is flowing or when the boy is laying in his mom's arms alive and well. But in the moments of stuckness and in the moments of desperation, somehow we lose sight of the fact that he is the same God, the God of abundance, the God who wants to do immeasurably, abundantly above anything we can ask or imagine. He's still the God who will meet us in our devastation and sit with us in the midst of it. All. By the way, I love the picture when it's all said and done about Elisha, the weird picture that it is, because I, I can't help but feel like that's kind of what Jesus did for me, right? Like that's, you know, stretched out completely, almost in this gesture of I will take your death and I will give you my life. And he's the same Savior who's with us in the midst of every single season. And I'm wondering what the season is for you, whether it's a season of longing, or whether it's a season of delight, whether it's a season of devastation. And the question is, are we willing in every season to stand with the full weight of our trust on the God of abundance, believing he will meet us there and do more than we can ask or imagine in our pain? He'll do more than we can ask or imagine even in our Joy, are you willing to trust him in whatever season with everything you are and praise him still? And even now as we sing, I wonder if whatever season you're in, there will be the willingness in you to just declare, I trust you here as my God and the God of abundance and you are worthy of my praise. We're going to sing. If you need to sneak out to grab a child or whatever you need to do, feel free to do that. Um, We're going to sing and then we're going to invite you if you want to come and pray with somebody up front to celebrate or to pray to ask God to meet you in longing. would love to do that with you. Why don't we stand together? Father, I pray that you would do amazing things in our hearts, that you would give us faith that we cannot even imagine. That you would stir that in our hearts and in our souls. Introduce yourself as a God of abundance in every season. And even now, I pray you'd meet us by your spirit and stir in us what it is you desire for us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.